College Service Southwest Archaeology Podcast, brought to you by the Southern Arizona Office. My name is Matt Newbar. And I'm Charlotte Hart. So in this episode, we'll be continuing our discussion about Buffalo soldier history, but we'll be focusing specifically on Chiricahua National Monument. And we'll be interviewing Ann Houston, who's a former interpretive ranger uh, from Chiricahua, now at Capitol Reef National Park. So for those uh, listeners that don't know much about Chiricahua, there is thousands of years of ancestral Native American history, as well as a more recent 19th century history that includes homesteading, ranching, and the Apache War period. So this interview is a follow-up to our discussion with Mr. Joe Sertain, who is a historian and historical reenactor that focuses specifically on Buffalo soldier history. Uh, So if you like this interview with Anne, uh, make sure you also check out the interview with Mr. Sertain. So we're here today with Anne Houston. She, until recently, was a park guide for Chiricahua National Monument and now is a park guide with Capitol Reef National Park. That means that she's one of those frontline rangers, those um, awesome people that you get to meet when you go into a park as, um, as a tourist. And Anne um, did a lot of research about the Buffalo Soldiers who were encamped at um, Benita Canyon in Chiricahua. So we're here today to talk to her. Thanks for joining us, Anne. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your background with the National Park Service? Sure. I've been with the Park Service for about five years. Most of the parks where I worked have been in the Southwest, but I had one summer in Alaska at Klondike Goldrush National Historical Park in Skagway. And that's where I first really learned about the Buffalo Soldiers and their connections to various National Park Service sites. And we all, all the rangers at Klondike Gold Rush, did programs on Company L, which was a unit of the 24th Infantry. And they were sent to Skagway to help keep the peace during the Klondike Gold Rush. So that was one of the untold stories that the park was working really hard to share with our visitors from all over the United States as well as the world. And when I moved to Chiricahua National Monument, I was really happy to see that there was a Buffalo Soldier connection there as well, and I've had a lot of opportunities to really dive into the story of all the men who were stationed in Benita Canyon during 1885 and 1886, the Apache Campaign in southern Arizona. Wow, that's really cool. (laughs) Thanks. So we normally interview cultural resource specialists, um, and so your job, you know, coming um, at the history of these encampments is a little bit different as a ranger and an interpreter, um, an interpreter in this sense, not in a language, but kind of interpreting the resources um, at a site for the public who might not be able to see what's underground, essentially. so uh, so that's really cool with your history of being at Klondike and then coming to Chiricahua. So um, I guess how did um, how did you go about, you know, doing your job at Chiricahua? That's a really good question. I guess the first thing that I had to do was, of course, learn a lot more about the 10th Cavalry because when I was at Klondike Gold Rush, that was the 24th Infantry. So generally men patrolling on foot as opposed to on horseback. 
And so just learning a lot about the 10th Cavalry and what their role was in the West as the United States continued to expand and as people, settlers came into conflict with people who were already living in that area. So in Chiricahua National Monument, that was usually the Chiricahua Apache. So just really wrapping my head around this complex story of people who were in one area who had been living there for generations, encountering other people who were newcomers and sort of the difficulties and conflict that arose from that. And Chiricahua has an amazing tangible connection to the Buffalo Soldiers that we can talk about on a fairly regular basis. And that's the chimney at Faraway Ranch, at the ranch house. And I think we'll be talking a little bit more about that later on in the interview. Awesome. Uh, well, so we also interviewed Joe Sertain, um, and he's a historical reenactor and descendant of the Civil War of Civil War soldiers. Um, and he, his interview, um, it was one of our longer interviews, but it, it, he just had so many vignettes um, that exemplified how easy it was to go from Buffalo Soldier to Black Outlaw, um, and that's kind of based on on prejudices that there's. Um, you know, this trope in um, in history books or in um, social histories of uh, of black people at this time that, you know, they filled certain roles as far as, um, you know, looking back. And so um, if you, you know, weren't a Buffalo soldier, then you must be an outlaw because because those were the two roles that, you know, are allowed uh, for black people to in, inhabit. Um, and that was based on prejudices of the day um, and the real prejudices that these men had to face. So I was wondering if you found stories from Benita Canyon um, of evidence of prejudice or, or any other um, social mores of the time. Yes, like the Henry Slipper connection in the fireplace. I, I don't actually so, remember the history, so you might, maybe it wasn't a, he, he was involved he was with a woman, right? Oh, he, he was embezzling. Well, he wasn't. He was wrongly accused of it. Okay. So Henry Flipper was the very first black graduate from West Point. Up until that point, any black soldier, no matter how smart they were or skilled they were, they capped out at first sergeant as an enlisted soldier. But Henry Flipper was able to become a commanding officer, and he still faced a lot of discrimination. While he was stationed at Fort Davis in Texas, he was wrongly accused of embezzling money, but basically to cover up the fact that he had not embezzled any money, he lied. And for lying, he was court-martialed and given a dishonorable discharge. And if he had been a white officer, most likely he would not have had such a harsh punishment. So by the time our Buffalo soldiers in the 10th Cavalry are stationed in Benita Canyon in 1885 and 1886, Henry Flipper was no longer in the U.S. Army. He worked as a land surveyor in southern Arizona, and he eventually became a mining engineer in Mexico and Venezuela, but he was never officially stationed in Benita Canyon, and we don't have any records that he was surveying in Benita Canyon, but we have a stone in the Garfield, in the Garfield fireplace that has Henry Flipper's name on it. So who carved his name into stone? If you look at it, it's in this perfect block print. It looks like it could have been typed. 
And most likely it was not Henry Flipper. He probably wasn't there, but he probably was such a great role model for these soldiers and for their children to aspire to become commanding officers themselves that someone out of admiration decided to carve his name into stone. Eventually, after... Yeah, it is so cool, yeah. And then he was later, much later on after he died, he was exonerated, is that, am I making Yeah, yeah, first by the Army in like the 70s, and then President Bill Clinton gave him a presidential pardon. That's right. In 1999. I don't know as many stories about Buffalo soldiers and black outlaws, but one of the men who was stationed in Bonita Canyon John Casey had a really long military career, and over that time, he was stationed a lot in the Southwest and in Texas at Fort Davis. And while he was in Texas, he was married to a woman who was from Mexico, and we don't have her exact name. The court records and military records from that time sometimes have illegible handwriting. Try as hard as you can. It's hard to read that cursive. (laughs) And... So he was married to this woman, and they were separated eventually, but they never had an official divorce, which came into play when he married his second wife after his enlistments were over, and this was back in his home state of Missouri, and she was black and he was black, and so that was fine, but there was a question of whether he was actually properly divorced from his first wife who was Mexican, and some of the court documents said because it was an interracial marriage at that time, it wasn't necessarily legal. So there were a lot of hang-ups about his relationship with his first wife and then, you know, his second wife. They stayed married until she passed away, and John Casey's third wife was white. And if you think about this time period, he was living in Missouri, And interracial marriage was illegal in Missouri until 1967, thanks to the Supreme Court decision Loving versus Virginia. So John Casey had to get married in Kansas, where it was legal for him to have an interracial marriage. So I think that his story really highlights some of the difficulties that he just had in his personal life, trying to live with the woman that he loved. Um, So I think that's, that's one that probably would stand out in my mind. Wow, that's so fascinating that you can find all of this information about um, soldiers' personal lives, even from military documents. Yeah, a lot of what we know about some of the men in Troop H, in particular, in the 10th Cavalry, was first compiled by this man named Harold Thayer, and he was a historian who did a lot of work at Fort Davis. And he wrote a book called Warriors of Color, and he did a lot of the legwork on finding that research. Interesting. And so the same troops that were at Benita Canyon and Fort Bowie were uh, at Fort Davis as well? Yes. A lot of the men went through Fort Davis. It was one of the major forts as you headed out west. And so a lot of them, if they weren't permanently stationed there or stationed for a few years the way John Casey was, they would have passed through there on their way to their various outposts in Arizona and New Mexico and other places. Right. So Mr. Sertain also describes African-American soldiers during the 1800s as, uh, quote, in the shadows of American history, 
Um, do you feel like small encampments um, like the one in Benita Canyon have any power to assuage that issue? You know, being so small, you might think there's not enough there. Certainly. I think that it's really true that a lot of these Buffalo Soldier sites and stories are in the shadow of a lot of major events that have happened in the United States. A number of the men who were stationed in Benita Canyon had really long military careers. Some of them fought for their own freedom during the Civil War and the U.S. colored troops, and some of them continued their military careers through the Spanish-American War and fought in Cuba. Some of them fought in the Philippines, which I think is pretty remarkable to think about men who were able to really travel the world and see the world and get this broader perspective just because they had joined the army. So that, you know, that really gives the men a wide range of places that we can connect them to, you know, all over the world as well as all over the United States. And if we zoom in on Chiricahua National Monument and the faraway ranch house, which is in the vicinity of where that temporary camp in Benita Canyon was, we probably have one of our most fascinating connections to the 10th Cavalry and they made a stone monument to President Garfield while they were stationed there over the winter of 1885 and 1886. And we can make some educated guesses as to why they chose to honor President Garfield, but there's a giant stone that says, in memory of James A. Garfield, and he had been recently assassinated in 1881, and prior to his presidency, he spent almost 20 years in Congress and was always an advocate for black rights during the Reconstruction era in the South. And then prior to that, he commanded black soldiers during the Civil War. So we can make an educated guess as to why they chose to honor him with this giant stone. And then around that giant centerpiece stone, a lot of the men carved their names and their initials, Troop H, E, or I, and the 10th Cavalry. So we have this monument that they made in 1886, but by the early 1900s, it was beginning to crumble down. And Neil Erickson, who was an early pioneer in Benita Canyon, was an army man himself. He was a Swedish immigrant, and he really liked this monument. He probably saw it shortly after it was built when he and his wife moved out to Benita Canyon in 1888. And he always wanted to see the monument restored to its former glory but he was unable to really get anyone interested in preserving it. And the monument just continued to disintegrate and people would take stones away as souvenirs. So it was in some ways in danger of being lost to history. Eventually, Neil's daughter Lillian and her husband, Ed Riggs, decided that the best way to save the monument was to dismantle it and turn it into their fireplace at Faraway Ranch. So this is completely undoing a monument <laughs> to President Garfield made by these Buffalo soldiers with their hand-carved stones, but it was preserving it in a different form as their fireplace, which is pretty fascinating, repurposing and re-sort of identifying this monument into something that they would use for decades to come to help heat their house. But... Because all these stones are cemented into the fireplace, they aren't in danger of wandering away or being taken as souvenirs. So it is pretty unconventional, but we often talk about 
this as an act of conservation because we have this tangible connection to the Buffalo Soldiers, even though it's not in its original form anymore. Wow, that's amazing. And can visitors still see it today? Definitely. So the grounds around Faraway Ranch are always open, so you can see the outside part of the fireplace and the guest dining room. And if you want to see that center stone that says in memory of James A. Garfield, you can go on a tour inside the ranch house with a ranger. That's great. You know, so often small sites like this are so ephemeral, um, and especially, you know, ephemeral camps by definition are thus ephemeral. Um, but uh, but that's great that there's this lasting um, physical, tangible, um, you know, item that, that visitors can still see and get that connection with the camp. Yeah, and I'm always hoping that there'll be some descendant of one of the Buffalo soldiers who's heard stories about this stone monument that his or her grandfather made, you know, so many years ago. And I just keep hoping that you know, something will come out of the woodworks and we'll be able to learn a little bit more about the lives of these men because, you know, with John Casey, everything we know is just based on court documents and military records. So we don't have any diaries. We don't have any letters to go off of. So until we have those documents and we can talk about them from, you know, the soldier's own point of view, anything that we say really is incomplete and imbalanced. Um, so, Speaking of, you know, these tangible objects, um, the camp in Bonita Canyon was excavated by uh, Marty Tagg uh, when he worked for the National Park Service. How do you connect the artifacts that he found um, and, you know, the, these physical objects that soldiers leave behind uh, to the men that you've researched? Well, sometimes it's hard to know if any artifact can go with a specific man, but I would say that's not necessarily the case for the blacksmith. John Robinson was Troop H's blacksmith, and he probably used some of the horseshoes and the horseshoe nails that have been found in Bonita Canyon. So I really enjoy just thinking about those, you know, they're now artifacts, but at the time they were just really useful objects that helped him do his job, helped protect the Army horse hooves, and, you know, just imagining him shaping the shaping the horseshoes and nailing them into the hard walls of the hoof. And John Robinson has two stones in the Garfield fireplace, as we call the fireplace at Faraway Ranch. And his first stone says, you know, his name, John Robinson, and then it says blacksmith. So he's proud of his occupation. But his second stone is really impressive. It's carved in high relief, which takes a whole lot more skill than just engraving your name into a stone. So here in high relief, you're sort of chiseling away everything that you don't want. So it's a lot easier to make mistakes or to ruin what you're working on when you're doing it in high relief. And he uh, chiseled out a horseshoe and a hammer as well as his initials. So he was really skilled, a, you know, a skilled stone worker, but also probably a skilled blacksmith and we know that he's Canadian. We know that he enlisted wow. in Detroit, Michigan. But that's all we know. I could only find one enlistment record. And I tried to trace a lot of different paths. But right now, that's all we know about him. And I just think from those few little facts, he seems like a pretty fascinating person. Seriously. That's um, 
one of the reasons I love archaeology so that you can get these, you know, very simple things that that look like they're, you know, trash, right? It's, it's yeah. someone left behind. And yet that can really start to connect you to, um, you know, this person who lived 150 years ago. Yeah. And I like to think about what maybe they ate. I mean, one of the artifacts is a royal baking powder tin. So maybe someone was using that to bake bread in an outdoor oven, you know, because you need baking powder to help things rise and baking soda. And so just imagining them making their bed, their bread. Of course, we usually buy our bread at the store. And if we make it from scratch, it's really easy for us to get the ingredients that we need. I mean, it's just a short drive to the grocery store. But for these men, that bread would, you know, take a lot more effort in a lot of ways to make sure you had all the ingredients that you needed and to make sure that you had the time to do it and you had the fire in the oven at the right temperature. So I love that little that little connection as well with the kitchen. Seriously, and probably a lot better than the, you know, thin, or not thin, but the, like, dense um, hard pack that they would have had 20 years earlier in the Civil War. Right, definitely. One of the interesting things, I've had the opportunity to actually look at the um, collection from Bonita Canyon, and also the collection from Fort Bowie, and they're really very similar, and that's not surprising, of course, because uh, a lot of it's, you know, military issue things like, like uniform accoutrements and um, you know, like you mentioned, uh, uh, food tins and things like that. Um, it makes me think that, uh, so for the listeners, I guess Fort Bowie is about uh, less than 20 miles away from Benita Canyon. Um, can you talk a little bit about the reasons why Buffalo soldiers would have been in a temporary encampment uh, as opposed to being at uh, Fort Bowie? Certainly. So, in the Chiricahua Mountains, there were lots and lots of temporary army camps during this Apache campaign. So the U.S. government was trying to capture all of the Chiricahua Apache, who in their eyes were causing a lot of trouble. And their military strategy to do that was to have soldiers stationed at every waterhole along the U.S.-Mexico border. So even though Bonita Canyon is more or less 60 miles north of the border, they have springs, they have creeks there, so there were soldiers there. And it just happened that Bonita Canyon, the only soldiers in that temporary camp were black soldiers in the 10th Cavalry. Other temporary camps had white soldiers in different cavalry and infantry units. So there were lots of temporary camps just scattered throughout the Chiricahua Mountains as the U.S. Army tried to capture Chief Mangus, Chief Nana, and a whole bunch of other people, including Geronimo. And Geronimo ended up being captured and taken to Fort Bowie. And so he was held there before he was transported by train all the way to Florida. So this was a big military push to capture all of the Chiricahua Apache. I've, I've heard it described for maybe lack of a better term as sort of search and destroy missions where they would be sort of chasing down these smaller groups of, of Apache combatants. And uh, from the stories that we heard from Mr. Sertain and, and some of the things I've read, it sounds like uh, that was a really hard lifestyle. Like that would have been really difficult to, to chase down some of these groups and, and live in some of these uh, temporary encampments far away from, from the fort. 
I think that that's really true. A lot of the men in Benita Canyon were, I imagine, mostly bored <laughs> during their time. I mean, they were guarding the waterhole. They were carrying mail. They were escorting civilians so they could get from place to place safely. But a lot of them didn't actually see any action during that year while they were stationed in Benita Canyon. But after Chief Nietzsche, who was Chief Cochise's son, and Geronimo surrendered, they were taken to Fort Bowie, and there was one more major Chiricahua Apache chief who hadn't been captured, and that was Chief Mangus. And some of the men in Troop H went with their commander and were able to capture Chief Mangus and his family. And this was a peaceful surrender, and it was partially negotiated by John Casey. Because you think about these different groups of people that we have interacting, the Buffalo Soldiers spoke English, the Chiricahua Apache had their dialect, and, you know, there could be some possible translation errors. And John Casey, probably because he had been married to a woman from Mexico, spoke Spanish. So he was able to translate Spanish from Mangus's mother into you know, just English, and they were able to negotiate a peaceful surrender. So he played an important role in translating, you know, Spanish because she was speaking Spanish to her son, uh, who was speaking the Chiricahua dialect, and it was, yeah, it was a safe surrender. No one was hurt. Of course, Chief Mangus and all of his family were then transported to Florida with all of the other Chiricahua Apache, so they were no longer allowed to live in their homeland. But it sounds like that was a pretty, pretty impressive surrender um, to have. That's amazing. You know, the last big surrender takes place in three different languages. Yes. And it was negotiated by Buffalo soldiers. They did, of course, have a white captain. His name was Charles Cooper. And his daughter wrote a pretty impressive memoir about her time as a child of the fighting tent. Her name was Forestine Cooper Hooker, and reading her memoir, there are some references to Benita Canyon and some of the individual soldiers who she sort of grew up with in a way. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's fascinating. You have a child that was following them. Would she have stayed in the forts rather than being at some of these advanced or uh, field encampments? Um, you know, we were talking about baking soda or baking powder, and that's, you know, seems very much like a luxury for for these men who are out in the middle of nowhere uh, guarding a waterhole. Yes. Normally, she and her mother would have stayed at the fort, but I think that her father had been in the field for quite a while, and her mother wanted to go out and visit him. (laughs) And so she brought her daughter along. And there's a story that Forestine was trying to bring back a cow that still had a calf because they wanted a cow to milk. And uh, she was having a hard time herding it through the canyon on her horse. And at one point her horse bolted and uh, she was screaming and her hat fell off. And one of the soldiers thought that she was being attacked. And so he rushed to her rescue and um, everyone got a big laugh out of it afterwards. But I don't think that they were really supposed to be in that temporary camp. It was just, I think Captain Cooper's wife missed her husband. Oh, excellent. 
so Buffalo Soldiers are connected with ne many National Park Service units throughout the American West and Southwest and uh, Northwest, as you've shown. Um, they even, you know, after the Indian Wars close up, we see Buffalo Soldiers who um, then end up serving in leadership in national parks. Um, it's not just national parks about uh, Buffalo Soldiers or that encompass Buffalo Soldier, um, you know, sites or remains. It's um, park rangers who are at the Presidio of San Francisco and Yellowstone and Sequoia Kings Canyon. Um, yet many people don't know that history. Um, what can listeners do to become more educated on that history? And what can the Park Service do to better tell their story? That's a really great question. I would say right now, one of the best places to go to learn more about Buffalo Soldiers and National Park sites is the Buffalo Soldier Subject site on nps.gov. So that's We can put NPS. links in for our listeners, too, on the Oh, perfect. Oh, yes, that would be perfect. So that's a great place to start and highlight a lot of the different parks that have connections to Buffalo Soldiers. But I would say one of the great things that visitors can do is ask a ranger if there are any untold stories in their park, because there are so many more things that we can talk about as park rangers than just the main reason that the park is established. So Chiricahua was established to protect the geology, but that's not the only story that we share. We talk about Faraway Ranch and the Swedish immigrants, and we talk about the Buffalo Soldiers. We talk about the plants and the animals. So there are lots of different stories that you can learn about in different national park sites. So I would certainly encourage you to ask a ranger about any untold stories. And I think that the Park Service is really becoming more aware and trying to share a lot of these diverse stories and multiple perspectives because the whole point of the park is to protect stories as well as you know the natural and cultural resources that we have. A lot of park sites have not just beautiful scenery, but really complicated stories that highlight why we are Americans. You have stories not just about Buffalo soldiers, but you have stories about civil rights in the United States, the Selma to Montgomery National Historic Trail. You have Manzanar, where Japanese and Japanese Americans were kept during World War II. You have Stonewall Inn that commemorates the ongoing struggle for LGBTQ rights in the United States. There are all sorts of complicated stories that are woven together into the fabric of who we are as Americans. And it's not just the beautiful places that the Park Service protects. It's this complicated history that makes us who we are and highlighting the connections that we have from the past to the present and thinking about the way all of these stories are intertwined. The fact that John Casey couldn't get married in his home state and if he had lived to be you know, if he had lived into the 1960s, he eventually would have been able to get married there in Missouri after the Supreme Court decision. But, I mean, that's a long time to wait. And so, I mean, there are a lot of these stories that are just ongoing. And history doesn't really end. It just keeps on going. And I think that that's something that the Park Service can continue to highlight, that it's not just dead guys in the past, it's a lot of issues that we're continuing to grapple with as a country today. One of the things that we've talked a lot about in some of our other episodes 
is relevancy and making sure that these places are relevant to all of the different groups of people that might come and visit. And so telling a lot of different stories from different perspectives is a great way that we can do that. Yeah, and I think that there are some really simple things. I mean, we're talking about soldiers. There's so many people who served in our armed forces across the country and across the world. You know, we have a whole month dedicated to African-American history. We have a month for women's history. I mean, we have all of these things that we value and dedicate time to. And I do think that when we highlight those in our national park sites, it's a great way to help connect connect the park to the people and the people to the park. Well, thank you, Anne. This is awesome. And, uh, and I totally agree. I hope that this um, episode has uh, helped a little bit to highlight some of those as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been really fun. So I love um, this interview with Anne. You know, it's one of our shorter ones, but she um, really has a way of bringing forward complicated stories and, um, and, you know, her quote about, um, you know, complicated stories really reveal who we are. And and that really is all about relevancy, right? And why these sites, why all of our National Park Service units were set aside. And, you know, with talking with her, it seems like there's all these like kind of little individual stories and it's cool to learn about that person. But, you know, Matt, you're back and forth with Anne about uh, Flipper and how, you know, you have this story about the first black cadet to, to graduate from West Point and how it has these ripples into the stones that were carved at Shirakawa and someone who, who probably revered him since we don't have the data that he was there. Um, and then how that, you know, continues out um, to all the way to modern history with President Clinton pardoning him that, you know, this really is not just relevancy from the 19th century, but relevant for today and the society we're in and the complicated stories we're still all trying to navigate. In our next episode, we'll continue uh, to talk about complicated stories uh, by discussing Children's Village at Manzanar with Carol Matsumoto. <laughs>